You're listening to a sermon from Oak Hill Fellowship Church, located in Strasburg, Pennsylvania. You can learn more about us by visiting oakhillfellowship.com or finding us on social media. Now grab a Bible, a notebook, and get ready to be spiritually enriched by the Word of God. You can open your Bibles to John chapter 20. John 20. Uh, Towards the very end of the book of John, before you get to the book of Acts, And uh, the title of today's sermon is Faith Through My Doubts. Faith Through My Doubt. And we're going to address a very common topic of doubt, which surprisingly shows up as a thread throughout all of the resurrection stories and all of the the sightings of Jesus after he was raised from the dead. Um, Recently, there's been a growing group within broader evangelicalism that is called the, the deconstruction movement. Has anybody ever heard of this? Or the, sometimes it's called the exvangelical movement. And uh, it's a growing number of people who have, uh, let's just say, some doubts about what the Bible says and about what they've been taught in church. And so the theory is that they're going to deconstruct or disassemble Christian doctrine. And they assume that that they are the ones who can really see through all of the trappings of the church and find out for themselves who Jesus really is and, and what Jesus really taught. And in the process, most of them don't just deconstruct, but rather demolish their faith. And they really try to help others do the same. And among the Lists of people who are in this movement, leaders in this movement, uh, Joshua Harris. Does that name sound familiar? Uh, once a mega pa- church pastor in, of the Sovereign Grace Movement's flagship church. Uh, you know, might know him from his popular 90s book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye. Uh, Rob Bell, uh, when I was in youth group, Rob Bell taught most of our youth group lessons because he had all these really creative uh, teaching videos And he has uh, deconstructed and really disowned his faith in any Orthodox Christianity. Uh, How about Marty Sampson from Hillsong Worship? Uh, We sang a song, you might not know that name, but we sang a song that he co-wrote last week uh, called, Oh, Praise the Name. The lyrics go, I cast my mind to Calvary, where Jesus bled and died for me. I see his wounds, his hands, his feet, my Savior on that cursed tree. We believe that. We sing that here. He went from writing that song, like six, seven years ago, to renouncing his faith in God in just a few years. And and it seems like an increasingly popular thing for people who call themselves Christians, especially if they have some celebrity status, uh, to deconstruct very publicly, and eventually they they leave the faith. And that can be disconcerting, to say the least, to many people in the broader church culture, especially a, a church culture that loves our celebrities, don't we? If so and so, whom I respect tested the fundamental elements of their faith, and they came out not believing, then should I really believe? Now, maybe you don't really struggle with this, and so you're wondering, like, why are you even bringing this up? 
Maybe you do struggle with those kinds of doubts and you're wondering, uh, why would I even be bringing this up? The theory goes that if I just ignore my doubts, they will eventually go away. Or if I ignore other people's doubts, they will eventually go away. And that thinking is exactly why, exactly why I am bringing this up today. Because in the past, the church has not done a great job with dealing with the topic of doubt. We tend to run from it rather than to look it right in the face. If we are the ones doubting, we tend to think that doubt is something that I need to work through by myself. That, that personal faith means that I must come up with my own perception of what is true from my own individual understanding. That's not what personal faith really means, by the way. Don't trust yourself that much. If we aren't the ones doubting, we tend to make people feel guilty for experiencing doubt. And many people in the church have also tended to assume that all doubt is equal. All doubt is the same. That it's simply a lack of understanding the facts about Jesus, and therefore any doubt must mean that that person is not and never was a believer. And, and that could be true, especially for those who finally renounce their faith. But I wonder if the church did a better job of acknowledging doubt and handling truth in a grace-filled and loving way, if we better understood the nature of faith and the nature of remaining sin and living out the truth that we say that we believe, would our young people be faced with the temptation to fully deconstruct everything by themselves? Would they throw out the baby of their faith with the bathwater of certain religious trappings? The fact is that the Bible addresses doubt. It reveals that the Lord is patient with our doubts, with those who question and lament and even make temporary expressions of disbelief. And we must learn to turn to Jesus in the midst of our doubts. Maybe you have been a doubter before and you need to be reminded of how Jesus overcame your doubts. Let this sermon serve that purpose for you today. Maybe you know a doubter, someone who is not exactly a, a hardened atheist, but who really struggles to believe what the Bible says and, and has a hard time taking it at face value. And you need to think through how to relate to them. Maybe you're going to see them even today at Easter dinner. Maybe you come today struggling with doubts of your own. And you, you sang the songs this morning about a risen Jesus and about his place in your life, but deep down you're like, yeah, but do I really believe it? Like, like do I, can I believe this? Today from John 20, I want to urge you, receive the blessing that comes when you let Jesus, destroy your doubts through faith. Receive the blessing that comes when you let Jesus destroy your doubts through faith. Your Bibles are open to John 20. We're going to be in verse 24 today. 
starting there. And there we encounter a man who, whose name has become almost synonymous with the topic of doubt. His name is Thomas. And John has arranged all of the scenes in his gospel, including this scene, so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, we may have life in his name. So this story about Thomas is here to convince us to believe through our doubts. So let's read John chapter 20, beginning in verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his, in his hands the mark of the nails and place my fingers into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then Jesus said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Today I'm pleading with you, receive the blessing that comes when you let Jesus break down your doubts, destroy your doubts through faith. Today, from this text, we want to consider three doubt-destroying acknowledgments. Three doubt-destroying acknowledgments. And the first one is this. Disciples have understandable reasons to doubt. Now, that's not the thing that you expected the pastor to say on Easter Sunday morning, is it? Disciples have reason, understandable reasons to doubt. I honestly think that we treat Thomas unfairly by calling him Doubting Thomas. Like, the poor guy. We single him out and we define him by this one moment of doubt when in fact he is very often portrayed as a very faith-filled disciple. Just last week when we're studying John 11, when all the disciples were scared for Jesus to go to Jerusalem because there the religious leaders wanted to kill him, it was Thomas who faithfully said, let us go with him that we might die with him. Thomas made that faith-filled statement, but we define him by this statement of doubt. And I think that that is reflective of the way that we sometimes handle doubt in the church, isn't it? We act like it's an anomaly, we act like it is unusual that there is something wrong with you if you experience this. We make people feel alone in their doubt rather than seeing doubt as an opportunity to build faith in the context of community. And so Thomas gets the bad name, but the truth is, all of the other disciples doubted the resurrection too. All of them. 
John mentions that Thomas was not there when the other disciples saw him. Both John and Luke report that sighting that happened on the night of Resurrection Sunday. But Luke includes a very interesting detail about that first Easter night. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, this is on the screen, peace be to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy now, it was unbelievable, and they were marveling, he said to them, you have anything here to eat? I love that. I just love Jesus. Oh, he's great. Anyway. And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. He's real. Like, he's got a real body. He's eating. Get this, though, that Jesus acknowledged all the disciples had doubts arising in their hearts on the night of his resurrection. And he allowed them to do exactly what Thomas was asking to do in order that he might believe. And so when Thomas demands to touch Jesus in this way, he's not being particularly obstinate. He's asking for the same opportunities that the rest of the disciples had. It wasn't just Thomas who doubted, it was all the disciples. Not only that, their doubts persisted after this time. Matthew records a different sighting a few weeks later in Galilee. He says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. But some doubted. Isn't it interesting that three out of the four gospel writers acknowledge doubt after the resurrection? It's almost like they aren't afraid of it. It's almost like they realize that doubt is understandable to a degree. We should not be surprised at the presence of doubt when we are talking about a man who died was confirmed dead and buried, and then rose again on the third day. It doesn't matter how much you were warned that this would happen, it's still pretty unbelievable, isn't it? That, that's part of what makes it so awesome. So don't give Thomas too hard of a time. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, in his sermon called The Desire of the Soul in Spiritual Darkness, said, I think when a man says, I never doubt, it is quite time for us to doubt him. It is quite time for us to begin to say, ah, poor soul, I'm afraid you are not on the road at all, for if you were, you would see so many things in yourself and so much glory in Christ, more than you deserve, that you would be so much ashamed of yourself as even to say, it is too good to be true. All disciples doubt. Thomas is just one window into our own doubting hearts. 
Now, we don't know what caused Thomas to doubt. I think it could be any number of things. I mentioned earlier that we tend to lump all doubt together. We treat it exactly the same. But as I I thought about what causes doubt to arise in people's hearts, I I think it might be helpful to consider three types of doubt together this morning, okay? I think any one of these could have been behind Thomas's struggle, maybe even all three. Uh, The first type is the most obvious, doubts of fact. Doubts of fact. Did this actually happen the way the Bible says it happened? For Thomas, maybe he doubted the physical reality that Jesus rose from the dead. Maybe he he couldn't wrap his mind around the sheer fact of it. How is the resurrection possible when people don't typically do that? I think that can be still a, a, a very real wrestle for people today. Maybe they hear the arguments of naturalistic scientists and they they don't know that there's alternative explanations of the data even things that naturalistic scientists are hiding to prove their point maybe they struggle with creation and evolution and how the bible portrays all these things or they struggle with the presence of miracles because they haven't seen any similar miracles for themselves Doubts might arise about the factuality of the Bible when, at first glance, there there appears to be contradictions in the Bible. Maybe doubts arise when we've heard someone really smart with a lot of letters behind their name claim to refute the Bible in all these ways. And so we're we're just like, "Uh, you know what? I'm not even going to investigate it myself. They figured it out. It's no good. Those are some doubts of fact. However, not all doubts fall into that category. In fact, I would argue that most doubts do not. There are also doubts of faith. Doubts of faith. These might be nagging accusations and lies of the enemy. Things like, uh, God doesn't love you. You are totally unlovable. There is no way that this gospel thing could be true. Things like, you don't really understand what it means to be saved. Trusting Jesus is not enough. It must be Jesus plus something else. I've heard doubt come in the form of believers wondering, is all of this Christianity stuff really worth it? Is it really worth it? Is following Jesus worth the sacrifice and the denying of my sinful desires and and all of that stuff is really hard sometimes? Sometimes doubts of faith come because I don't want to deal with my sin against God. It's easier if I doubt or deny that God exists and then I can live in all of the sin that I want to live in. Listen, every choice to sin is expressing doubt in something that God has said to be true. You don't think you deal with doubt? You ever sin? Every choice to sin is expressing doubt in something that God has said to be true. And in our sin, we are not believing something about God and what He has said is right and true and holy. We're not, or we're not believing something about what God has done to free us from our sin and to give us life in Him that it does not have power over us. It is not the final end. Maybe for Thomas, this was a crisis of faith that he had abandoned Jesus just like the rest of the disciples on the night of the betrayal. And if he admits that Jesus is raised, then what's Jesus going to say to me? 
How's he going to handle me? Those doubts of faith often come with strong doubts of feeling. It's the third type of doubt that I want us to consider today. I mean, Thomas and the other disciples went through a terribly traumatic event. Watching their rabbi, their Lord and friend, get brutally tortured and crucified. Wondering if the officials were coming for them next. Maybe his doubts were rooted in extreme grief and sadness, even depression. Maybe they were rooted in fear and anxiety, in despair, like we talked about last week. All of those things can contribute to our doubts, can't they? How can a good God have this plan? I've also seen doubts of feeling Uh, come from being hurt by others who belong to a a certain theological system or or, or Christian subculture. So the logic would go like this. Uh, The person who hurt me believes X. Therefore, X must be the cause of my hurt, leading me to doubt the validity of belief X. That's faulty logic, right? Because it, it... downplays the potential that the believer in X is really the problem and not the belief itself. But it doesn't keep people from, ex- from experiencing doubt because of that all the same. Doubts of fact, doubts of faith, doubts of feeling. Here's the bottom line. Here, here's the most important part that I want you to understand about everything that I just mentioned. All of these very understandable reasons for doubt lie in the limited perspective of the doubter, not the one being doubted. All of these very understandable reasons to doubt lie in the limited perspective of the doubter, not the one being doubted. We have a limited understanding of the facts, don't we? Our sin and the sin-sick world in which we live limits the quality of our faith and amplifies the response of our emotions. And our doubts are understandable because of the one doubting. If I take an honest look at myself, it should be no wonder that I doubt sometimes. And sometimes that realization makes all the difference. Because it first makes doubt seem less terrifying. No, no, I'm I'm not going crazy. No, I'm not losing my faith. This is understandable. But then it, it positions us within our doubt. It orients us like we talked about on Friday night. So we begin to doubt our doubts instead of doubting God. It positions us to seek Jesus in the midst of our doubt. To seek truth in the face of my doubts of fact. To seek gospel understanding when my faith is weak. To seek the heart of God when my emotions are going haywire. What matters when I encounter doubt is which direction I'm facing. 
Am I turning toward God and asking Him to calm my doubts? Or am I turning inward toward myself and to other doubters, asking them to confirm my doubts? You'll get what you seek. You'll get what you seek. And in that moment of my doubt, if I choose to turn toward God, I will be able to acknowledge this second doubt-destroying truth that Jesus personally provides sufficient evidence to calm my doubts. Jesus personally provides sufficient evidence to calm my doubts. So Thomas made these statements of doubt sometime in the week after Resurrection Sunday. Uh, But eight days later, the way the Jews would have counted, by the way, this would have been the next Sunday night. You're like, that's only seven days. I don't have time to explain it. (laughs) He's still with the disciples. Thomas is still with the disciples. That's so, so, so important. Because our society would say, uh, don't let anyone influence you. You need to come to your own interpretation of the facts. But that's foolish. I'm just going to call it for what it is. It's foolish. Because the facts are bigger than you and your interpretation. And contrary to popular belief, the facts do not change based on our, etern- our, on our interpretation. They are true regardless, and we need the help of others to see the truth of Jesus, especially because we are prone to doubt. Ultimately, we need more than the help of others, though. We need the help of Jesus himself. And Jesus is willing to provide that help. Look at verse at the second half of verse 26. Although the doors were locked, although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and, and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. I love that John says, although the doors were locked. Yes, this is a statement telling us that the disciples were afraid. And yes, this is a statement that the, about the metaphysical reality that Jesus' glorified body can somehow go through locked doors, and we all get kind of hung up on that fact, right? But I believe even more, this is a theological statement about how Jesus is not hindered or thwarted by anything. Jesus goes through locked doors to secure the faith of his people. Jesus can get to us even when our hearts are locked up and we outright say, I will not believe. And Jesus enters this locked room and addresses them all and then he looks straight at Thomas and responds to every single one of his demands. And as he does, he addresses all three types of doubt. So the doubt of facts, he says, put your finger here and here. See for yourself. Jesus personally provides rock-solid evidence to assuage any doubt of the facts of the resurrection in Thomas's heart. For us today, we have totally sufficient evidence to the truth of the Scriptures and to the reality of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The claims of Jesus Christ have satisfied some of the greatest minds in human history. 
We have eyewitness accounts written just a couple decades after the events, attested to by men who on Good Friday when Jesus was being crucified, they were running in fear. But after that, they were willing to die for the testimony that Jesus was raised from the dead. Outside of the resurrection, we have archaeological evidence that backs up much of what we read in the Bible and does not contradict any of it. We have plausible explanations for every so-called contradiction that you could find in the Scriptures. We have plausible scientific explanations for everything that we see in the geological record. And I don't have time to go into all the facts and arguments today, but you need to know that the facts easily support this word. All of it. And I'd be happy to give you some resources to that end. I'd be happy to walk with you in that. But we all must be honest and admit that the doubt of the facts are never all that's going on. It's never just a merely, merely a, a problem of doubting facts. Faith is more than knowing and understanding all the right facts. You could have all of the right facts lined up perfectly and still not have faith. Faith is believing a personal Savior and Lord, and Jesus addresses Thomas in his doubts of faith. Notice how personal Jesus gets here. Touch, see, place your hand, and believe. Jesus is inviting Thomas to move toward faith through careful, personal examination. So this is the painting that is, is part of our graphic for the series. It, it's by the Italian Baroque master Caravaggio. It's called The Incredulity of St. Thomas. Incredulity means unwillingness to believe. And so in, in our graphic, we overlaid it with an image of the tune to make it slightly less uh, graphic. But I wanted you to see it outright here because I wanted you to see just how personal it is. Th this is Caravaggio's imagination of the scene. Uh, Jesus is laid bare for Thomas to see. And Thomas is going all out in sticking his finger in Christ's side. I mean, he's getting in there deep, isn't he? This is personal. This is intimate. You see, we, when we are facing a, a crisis of faith, we don't just need more facts. Thomas had all the eyewitness accounts from very trusted, trustworthy sources that he could have ever asked for. He didn't just need more facts. We need to be able to carefully examine the person and work of Jesus Christ. We need to wrestle with the facts. We need to get up close and personal with the facts and let them sink deep into our heart. This is different than reinterpreting the facts through our own subjective bias, through our own political viewpoints, through our culture's definitions of right and wrong, through the, what, the scholars that we want to go, try to go out and find that, that want to disprove the resurrection and have every motivation to do so. This is an examination of faith in the midst of doubt. I'm testing 
if Jesus can be trusted. And he can. He can live up to our close scrutiny. This Jesus really died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin and mine. He really descended into the grave. He really was raised in bodily form. And he really ascended to the right hand of the Father where he sits now ruling and reigning until the day that he returns. And based on those facts, if those things are true, then we must put our whole stock in him because this is a resurrected Savior who died for you and for me. Listen, the facts of the resurrection are the ground of proof for our faith. Ultimately, what we need then is the personal touch of Jesus. For us, this is not a physical examination, but we still need to encounter Jesus as a personal, real, living, breathing Savior. There is no salvation apart from that. There is no salvation in merely chasing down some facts. There is only salvation in personalizing those facts through faith. That's personal faith. If the facts really support the crucifixion and the resurrection, then we can stake our total faith upon them. And not only did Jesus die, rise, and ascend, he really invites us to draw near to him in faith. Even though we abandoned him, even though we did not follow through on all of our brave promises to die with him, even though it was our sin that he had to die for, and even though we sometimes shake our fists at him and say, I will never believe. He personally draws near to us in faith, through faith. And he produces that faith in us. That's how grace works. Jesus finishes the work And then he personally reveals himself to us. And so the cross and the empty tomb is the evidence of God's love for us, even when we feel unlovable. Of his power to accomplish his purposes in us. Of his plan to use suffering to accomplish victory. And of his commitment to see us through to the end and to give us all that we need for our walk of faith in him. Romans 8.32 says it this way, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, that's the evidence, how will he then not also with him graciously give us all things? That's our faith. Jesus is willing to personally draw near and calm our doubts of faith. What we are called to in faith is not merely a religious system. We are called to a living person. And that will affect all of our being, including our emotions. Jesus does not address doubts of fact and faith only. He addresses doubts of feelings. We need the facts to inform our faith and our faith to inform our feelings. Remember, I said that some of Thomas's doubts could have stemmed from the trauma of the situation, the paralyzing fear combined with extreme grief. 
And Jesus doesn't just write that off. He addresses it right from the very beginning. He says, peace be with you. Peace be with you. In other words, because I am here, because I am real, because I am resurrected, you can put your doubts and fears and anxieties to rest. All can be well in your world because I have conquered death and I am risen. And the truth of the death and resurrection of Christ, the the fact of His existence, the reality of His presence does not change despite my ever-changing feelings. Doubts of feelings arise because while our feelings are real, they are also fickle. I I know that to be true in my heart. I hope that you understand it to be true in your heart. They are responses. My feelings, my emotions are responses to my perceived reality, not the reality itself so important that we understand that about our emotions. My emotions are responses to my perceived reality, not the reality itself. Which is why we must seek faith through our doubt. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote this in Mere Christianity. He says, faith, in the sense in which I am here using the word, is the art of holding on to things your reason once accepted in spite of your changing moods. That is why faith is such a necessary virtue. Unless you teach your moods where they get off, you can never be either a sound Christian or even a sound atheist. Faith does not mean that we never face doubts of feelings. It means that we inform those doubts of feelings with truth that is outside of ourselves. Truth that was true before but doesn't feel true now is still truth. We need, to, we need the facts to inform our faith and our faith to inform our feelings. And so Jesus provides all of this evidence and then he calls Thomas so graciously to relinquish his doubts. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Do not disbelieve, but believe. According to commentator Merrill C. Tenney, Jesus' words can be translated, stop becoming an unbeliever and become a believer. And that's helpful because it demonstrates that our doubt is never neutral. You are either going to use your doubt to drive you toward faith or away from it, toward Jesus or away from him. You see, doubt is understandable as a current, momentary, snapshot-in-time position. But it is not a place to pitch your tent and camp out. It's not a badge of honor like it's treated in some Christian circles. You are either feeding your doubt or you are feeding your faith. You are either moving toward disbelief or toward belief. And like I said earlier, What matters when you encounter doubt is which direction you are facing. Are you turning toward Jesus to calm your doubts or are you turning inward toward yourself or toward others seeking to confirm your doubts? 
The evidence is there. It is sufficient. Jesus is personally committed to revealing it to you if you seek him with all your heart. Now maybe you're thinking, sure, uh, Jesus gave Thomas some very personal evidence. He physically appeared to him. But I've never seen that kind of evidence. If I had that kind of irrefutable evidence, I would believe too. Uh, Maybe. Maybe not. But we do have the story of Thomas's encounter as evidence for us. And we also have a very particular promise from Jesus. Good verse 28. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. So here's the final doubt-destroying acknowledgement. Jesus promises eternal blessing in overcoming my doubts. Sometimes when we're in the midst of doubt, we need to look beyond the doubt itself to the blessing of faith. Because what do I have if I don't have the resurrection? I have nothing. I have death and then... So if you need some motivation... Look to the eternal blessing of overcoming my doubts. It's interesting, despite uh, Caravaggio's imaginative painting, John never tells us that Thomas actually touched Jesus. Did you notice that? Check me on it. It's in the, it's in the Bible in front of you, not just in mine. Tom, uh, John never acknowledges that Thomas touched Jesus. In fact, he seems to suggest Just the opposite. That Thomas made the demand and Jesus made the invitation, but that the mere sight of Jesus and hearing his voice was enough for Thomas to definitively declare, my Lord and my God. So in Luke, all the other disciples actually touched him. In John, Thomas doesn't touch him. And yet we call Thomas doubting Thomas. Man, get that off the poor guy. It wasn't the mere satisfaction of all the facts that brought Thomas to the point of his faith. It was the personal encounter with the living Jesus. This must be my God in the flesh. This is the declaration of faith that we're called to make and live by as well. Jesus is our Lord and our God. A resurrected Savior is not something that you can just kind of look at once a year or even, even once a week and then just kind of like let the rest of your life go by unaffected by Him. It doesn't work that way. He is the Lord of all creation and therefore the Lord of our lives and He must be my Lord. That's faith. He's my Lord. He's not a far off God who kind of controls things from a distance and just watches it all spin out. He's one who took on our humanity, who came for us, who entered into the greatest possible human suffering, whose hands and feet were pierced through with nails, whose side was punctured with a spear until the blood and water of his dead body flowed out, proving his death. And that death of the perfect, 
Holy One paid the penalty of sin that you and I owe for our sin. He died in our place for our sin. And God the Father raised him up by the power of the Holy Spirit, accepting his sacrifice on our behalf for, and for everyone who believes in his name, even the doubter. Everyone whose life is changed by this declaration, Jesus, my Lord and my God. He gives forgiveness of sins and counts the righteousness of Christ to them. And there is eternal blessing in believing in this Jesus. Jesus said, blessed are those, happy in the Lord are those who have not seen and yet believed. When Jesus makes that statement, he's not saying it for Thomas' sake. He's saying it for ours. He knows that we are not going to get to see him in the flesh, that our doubts are going to be stronger because of that, but also that our faith can be stronger because of that. And there is eternal blessing, overwhelming satisfaction and delight in his presence, the calming of all our fears, the covering of all our shame, the absolution of all our guilt, because Jesus has overcome Satan, sin, and death for us. And Peter picked up on this statement of Jesus in his first letter to the Jewish Christians who were facing tremendous hardship and scattered around the Roman Empire. He said, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Do you love Jesus? Do you love Jesus? Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And so you may have doubts today, but if you seek Jesus and you allow him to destroy your doubts, you can have inexpressible, glorious joy for all eternity. That's the outcome of our faith. That's the salvation of our souls, the presence of our Savior. And so what are your doubts? What are your doubts? Get honest with them. Maybe you can identify where they fall. Are they doubts of fact? Are they doubts of faith? Are they doubts of feeling? Be honest about them. They are understandable. You are a limited human being. Jesus loves you in the midst of that place. But doubt your doubts, not the object of your doubts. And then seek out the evidence. It's there. You just need to believe it. The truth of Jesus Christ is able to withstand your close scrutiny. Ultimately, you will not get to see everything that your heart demands about Jesus, and so you will have to have faith. And you can know that there is great blessing in believing. Do not disbelieve but believe. I pray that some of you here this morning would do that for the first time today. That you would cry out to God as one man and said in the scriptures, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. That's a prayer that you can pray right in the middle of your doubt. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. 
Cry out to God. Confess your sin to Him. Confess your doubts to Him. And then ask Him to reveal Himself to you. He's real. He's personal. He wants to break through the locked doors of your heart. That's going to require that you acknowledge that it's not merely a doubt of fact, it's a doubt of faith. And then, as you acknowledge your sin, as you say, Lord, I need your salvation. I need you to rescue me. I'm turning from my sin, and I'm turning to trust in Jesus. Even though some doubts might still exist, as you acknowledge your sin, confess that he is the only Savior and Lord who died and rose again on your behalf. And you can't do anything to earn that salvation. You are not good enough. But he is. And his righteousness can be counted to you. And so we're going to go to a time of prayer pretty soon here and use that time of prayer to do business with the Lord there. But if you have done that, if you are a believer, I pray that you would walk by faith in Him today. You cannot say that you are a believer. Say, He is my Lord and my God and not be affected by that each and every moment of each and every day. And every doubt that you would have, let it stir you up to go deeper in your walk of faith in Him. To understand more, to pray harder, to seek Him fervently. Because if you do, you will find Him. He will do more than satisfy your doubts. He will give you joy inexpressible for all of eternity. Thank you for listening to Oak Hill Fellowship Church. Stay connected with us by finding us on social media or by joining us Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. Until then, remember that you are loved.